If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Game Dev Unchain, a podcast about game development and the lifestyle thereof. I am your host, Brandon Pham. And along with me this week, please welcome our special guest, Michael Volpe. Uh, I'm Michael Volpe with uh, IO Gear, the marketing manager in charge of both IO Gear and Caliber Gaming by IO Gear. Mm hmm. So this is actually the perfect timing to uh, where our guests, such as yourself, go through a background of the resume before. Now that we know you're from Isle Gear, uh, where you're heading, where you are now, just a little, a little more, a uh, bit of a glimpse about your your career and how you got there. Absolutely. Um, so I, you know, I've been the marketing manager for Isle Gear for the last uh, year. Um, but before that, I had an extensive career uh, in video games, uh, working mostly on the marketing and public relations side, uh, starting all the way back uh, with a little company called uh, K2 Network, based here in Irvine, uh, that had a free-to-play uh, first-person shooter. Um, Korean. It was a Korean uh, port that we were working on. Uh, I... My, it was my first video game credit where I actually wrote the uh, instruction manual uh, and then helped manage the German forums for the game uh, during uh, both beta and then launch. Awesome, man. Uh, so how, how did you uh, switch from primarily software to, to hardware? How, how was that transition? Uh, it was kind of a... Um, just due to the nature of uh, working for a public uh, public relation and marketing agency, uh, you kind of go where the clients are. Um, so what ended up working out for me was I ended up working with an agency called uh, Eisenberg Group out of Pasadena, and they had a lot of relationships with uh, Microsoft. Uh, I was part of the very large, very large team that helped launch the Xbox One. Um, we worked on the commercials that ironically turned people's Xbox on and, uh, you know, queued up video games before we could figure out how to get around that whole connect, mm -hmm. uh, microphone. Um, but we worked on, uh, you know, working with, uh, Microsoft and placing the, the Xbox with reviewers, um, getting games out to them. So it's kind of been, uh, it's a, you know, the way hardware and software works in the agency world, it's a very fluid kind of relationship uh, depending on the client you're working with and uh, whether that client has a relationship with a software developer or are a publisher. Um, I've had the opportunity to work with um, Electronic Arts, Microsoft, Criterion Games, uh, Atari back when they existed, <laughs> um, and Warner Brothers Interactive. Um, and 
you kind of like uh, basically flow into uh, the hardware and the software depending on the needs of the, the, the client at the time. Did you come into the uh, industry through marketing and public relations or was it kind of like a, a, there was a segue before you landed to where you are in terms of career path? So I, ironically, I um, started in business, public uh, business journalism, Mm -hmm. uh, where I had the opportunity to write about companies that are based in Orange County. Uh, And one such company is, you know, this, this little company, they, they've created the World of Warcraft, Starcraft, Um, you know, most people haven't heard of them. And uh, as a result of those relationships, uh, I had an opportunity when I left journalism to uh, start kind of working with uh, other agencies who had a need for someone who was familiar with the video game industry, uh, could speak the language, who uh, had started having relationships with uh, the reporters. And as a result, uh, I kind of became the Orange County equivalent of a go-to guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, which then led to uh, working my way into various agencies where I had the opportunity to uh, work on major titles and little titles and little known titles and uh, things I don't want to speak about ever again. <laughs> yeah. So the game industry is a, is a very unique choice. Uh, when game developers talk about the beginnings of the career, uh, they went into it. I feel like majority in passion and less about the stability and money. So did you go into game development uh, or at least in the game industry mostly because of your uh, upbringing around games? Uh, how did you fall into this industry in particular? Because re- public relations and marketing obviously has values in other industries as well. Uh, Yes. Uh, my passion has always been for the video game, both software and hardware. So kind of transitioning into gaming was kind of something that I uh, aspired to. Um, I've had the opportunity, like the, the nature of the agencies I've worked for, it, I've not always worked on video games. Um, I've worked with other verticals from healthcare to finance to um, straight up technology. Um kind of the transition into IO gear kind of uh, applied to that because we kind of live on the periphery of both, um, you know, a lot of the products we have are things that people don't normally associate with gaming. But then if you go into a game development studio, you'll find IO gear uh, KVMs that allow you to switch between multiple computers all over the place. And so we're kind of a vital part of gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, so, my kind of drive to get into gaming uh, one way or another has kind of led me to the various roles that I've had, the various clients I've had the opportunity to represent, and my current position with IO Gear, kind of assisting um, in like the shadows essentially with, uh, you know, working to promote our KVMs so that we can allow developers to build better games. Definitely. I'm always been interested because I, I primarily stayed within the game industry. I would love to hear more about your comparisons with other verticals. Um, seeing that you have such a breadth of um, resume <laughs> working with other industries. I mean, what are, what are the biggest differences that you see between our industry versus the rest? So I think the biggest differences are uh, with the video game industry, there's far more a focus on 
the relationship with the journalist. Um, a lot of the bigger agency or bigger companies that I worked with, uh, it was less, it, the, the relationship with the reporter was more reactive and less proactive. Um, you know, with the case of like working with Kotaku or working with IGN, you know, you're, you have a very weird relationship where you're sharing information, but it's on your terms until it reached, the, until the game starts to reach critical mass. And then you've got, Kotaku and IGN kind of covering every single leak, every single delay, and it, it become, goes from being a proactive to a reactive kind of relationship uh, until you get to the review portion where you get to be a petty god and decide whether or not they get a review code. <laughs> <laughs> so another question that I have when it comes to um, hardware. So the console generations have always propelled us for to change uh in a very fast moving environment uh we're at a point with graphics now where game development it kind of driving the graphics card and and people going out there to buy nvidia cards and stuff like that right comparing to other industries do you feel like peripherals are uh more favorable with game industry uh, versus other verticals because of that reason? Yes. Well, because we have to, you know, like a lot of what IO Gear does, we, we are pretty much lockstep with as they make an advancement, we have to make an advancement. Um, and there is always a little bit of, uh, you know, we're trying to be innovative by introducing dual K 4K and they'll introduce 4K 60 hertz. So then that requires us to go 60, uh, 4K 60 hertz. Um, you know, the transition to Type C has kind of forced a lot of developers to rethink how the hardware operates and the type of display you're going to, you know, play your game on. And as a result, as a peripheral company, we have to continue to move forward and be innovative with um, the Type C docking stations or the Type C switch docks or the Type C. Um, you know, KVMs that allow people to utilize the, the services. Um, one of the, you know, products that we sell uh, through Caliber Gaming uh, by Gear is the Keymander, which is a uh, keyboard mouse uh, adapter, which allows you to use the um, your Xbox or your PlayStation with a keyboard and mouse, even if the game doesn't have native keyboard mouse support. Uh, as you've seen over the last few years with like Fortnite and a number of the other large titles, native keyboard mouse support is becoming more popular and much more accepted. Um, but, you know, that's one of those things where we saw a need in the marketplace where players wanted to be able to use their Xbox One, their PlayStation 4, and they wanted to play the latest and greatest games, but with a keyboard and mouse. And we helped facilitate that. Um so a lot of you know our advancements have led to us coming up with products that support and in some cases either enhance or um, allow the customization that perhaps the developer didn't foresee uh, going forward. Mm-hmm. This is actually an interesting topic because the last couple of years, maybe thanks to Fortnite, crossplay has become 
more of a the norm. Even PlayStation have folded into this. Uh, before the controller versus keyboard and mouse, like you were talking about, were two separate audiences and ecosystem where uh, console makers want to keep that separate, especially Xbox, because they actually uh, are a very unique uh, type of company. They have a PC market and the console market. And until recently, they finally allowed what you said, keyboard and real keyboard and mouse support. Uh, right. It's always been it's been fascinating uh, because from like a, a PR and a marketing standpoint, um, there has been this game of, of course we support the keyboard and mouse. And then you'll note that there's like a little asterisk next to that statement because then you, you know, kind of dig into the details and it's like, yes, we support keyboard and mouse in the, you know, main interface or we'll let you type your name. But if you want to play your game, you're going to be dead in the water because you're going to need to pick up that, that controller. Uh, and then in the case of like the crossplay, kind of, um, you know, streamlining and forcing people into the various keyboard or uh, console lobbies uh, has been a fascinating approach, which we kind of live on the peripherally of uh, because a lot of the technology that we're utilizing, you know, it stems from a, you know, our keymander is built on KVM technology which is fairly old, but what it does is allows for keyboard mouse emulation. Well, what allows us to do with the commander and the controller is we can basically reassign um, the buttons on your Xbox controller, your the controller with the, the control stick with the mouse. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is you are seen by the you know, by Xbox as still a controller rather than a keyboard mouse, uh, which has led to uh, the very diverse issue of whether or not you're technically cheating or if you're just, you know, playing the game that you wanted to play the way you wanted to play it. So streaming and game developers, well, gamers and game developers alike are uh, utilizing a, a very new marketing uh with streaming right streaming is becoming such an important part of the making a game and 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 showing it off but i i feel like at least beginners who are new to that platform aren't really well equipped with the right gear to have like a lag list type of experience i mean like if i were to kind of shoot from the hip my idea of streaming is like, well, I have my computer and then something like OBS and I'm good to go. But the fact is, while you're making the game or you're playing the game and trying to stream at the same time, uh, I would often get disconnected. So what, what are the basic basic rule of thumb for uh, would-be streamers out there that you feel are misconceptions out in the world right now? Well, I think one of the things is the... You know, there's a certain focus on the hardware and a certain focus on the software. Um, the market is pretty much dominated by Elgato. Um, IOGear has uh, launched a couple products that kind of, t- you know, touch upon the live streaming um, components that are, they try to be as plug and play. They try to be value friendly. Um, uh, we have other products that are coming out. Uh, in you know next year CES um, that come up, that speak more closely to that particular um, 
industry. Uh, but one of the things that we've we found, you know, we, we go to TwitchCon, we went to Streaming Media West, um, is the, the end users, consumers, the gamers, um, there's just so much information out there that it's not clear how to go about this, how to build an audience. Um, you know, do you operate like a ninja? Do you operate like a Dr. Disrespect? Do you uh, focus on, you know, like kind of establishing the audience? Because I feel like a lot of what we're seeing with the live streaming audience, especially with gamers, is they don't have the, you know, they, they, they'll buy all the bells and whistles with all the new toys. And then there's no instruction on how to use it. You kind of you need to have a graduate degree to figure out how to uh, utilize your your stream link or you know do the transition so that it looks like a professional um, production. Uh, and what ends up happening is you get folks who you know they they buy in, they want to become uh, Twitch streamers, and they buy all the toys and result in a situation where they get frustrated and they basically walk away. Uh, it's something that we saw, I think five, six years ago with uh, the podcasting industry. Um, people like all, every, all of these folks launched podcasts and then, you know, they got 10 podcasts in and they were frustrated that they weren't getting offers from uh, Amazon for their the latest book deal. And they just kind of walked away. And even if they had the best technology, uh, you know, it didn't overcome the the content uh, and the the need to continue to you know the frequency. Um, I think Ninja has said it best that while he was off doing interviews for ESPN and for Sports Illustrated, he lost um, followers because he wasn't producing at the level he was producing before those people um, were interested in him. Right, and that that's a prevalent problem because we've seen many articles since the streaming revolution happened where streamers are under a lot of stress, right? They uh, rightfully get burnt out because, because of not being in front of the camera actually loses their audience, which is a very, I, I guess, very natural thing to do, but as a one man production, like you kind of mentioning and, uh, and for people who want to go into this, you're basically buying into a mini broadcasting tools and, and gear that it, it, it doesn't come very cheap, right? And right. once you do have an audience like Ninja or, or those top streamers out there, you're under a lot of stress to keep that going. Um, I, I guess this is kind of just more like an open discussion. Like, what, what are your thoughts about that part of the world? Aside from having the best gears, <laughs> like what 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 type of issues that you're seeing? Maybe this is coming from your experience with the other verticals, where you're like, you know, this is a situation that can somewhat resolved and stuff that we can look at to kind of rectify this this ongoing problem. So a lot of it comes down to planning. Um, I would say that the biggest problem I see with a lot of the streamers who get frustrated uh, is that there isn't a like they don't have a structure they don't have a plan they just kind of their idea is like i'm going to wing it until i am successful and you kind of have to treat it like you're a mini production company like there's a reason that like abc disney uh fox uh sony like they're very good at producing content and they produce content in a way that drives engagement um 
drives um, impressions, and you kind of have you see a lot of like the more popular streamers who are being very successful. The their success stems from the fact that they're able to uh, keep a very regular schedule. They're able to uh, produce content on a regular basis. Uh, they kind of, to a certain extent, manage expectations and. I think a lot of them have like looked at the model that you've seen with, you know, the early YouTubers where uh, folks, you know, would produce a number of videos, they would get burned out, and then you would never see them again until two and a half years later where they would return with a new batch. Um, so you kind of see this across the board with the, the live streaming audiences, especially in the Twitch and the Mixer uh, and Facebook space, where the ones that are successful are the ones who are. Uh, keeping a solid schedule who are managing their expectations, who are aware that they can't be streaming uh, 24 seven because, uh, you know, sometimes you have to sleep and sometimes you have to eat. Mm -hmm. That sounds reasonable. <laughs> so you're, you're a native. Uh, and I would say, go ahead, go for it. But I, like, you know, the, the problem that a lot of the other verticals that I've worked for uh, it, what ends up happening is like, it's the, the same problem that it's like, healthcare company or a technology company, you know, you decide I'm going to do, we're going to do blogs and they, you know, you start out real strong with like five, 10 blogs on your, and then you're like, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have three to five blogs every single week talking about all sorts of situations. Well, what ends up happening is if you don't have someone who's dedicated to controlling the blog schedule, who's dedicated to um, writing the blogs, uh, what's going to end up happening is you're going to slowly notice that you're not producing at the same rate because you don't have a plan. Right. I mean, I'm at, at center point, the quality will go down the frequency. I mean, it's all driven by passion. Um, and I think that's one that, um, because of the burnout, uh, the streamers are, are just having conflicting issue about continuing forward or not. But I mean, that was his little tangent. Uh, it was great to kind of hear your thoughts on that because you seem a little uh, familiar about that subject. I definitely want to talk well, to you we, about. Go ahead. We're definitely BioGear is moving into that space, so we've become uh, definitely more knowledgeable about it. Um, you know, if if you if everyone is interested, they should uh, check out CES this year. We have a lot of fun excitement. Uh, surrounding a lot of our upcoming live streaming products. Mm -hmm. The valuable skills that you have allotted being a public relations and marketer is a, uh, is a skill set that I feel every, we have a lot of developers out there. Uh, it's a skill set that I feel that gets often ignored. Uh, we're talking about one man production while we're talking about small, smaller teams like indie developers as well. Uh, this is something that is often just learned through practice and not really through uh, education, at least from a developer like myself, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> we actually met you at the GDC convention last year, right? And uh, it sounds like also you, you go to a lot of these trade shows and it's a bit of a showman as well to kind of make sure that your products are being uh, represented correctly and everything. What are your tips out there for people who are, it doesn't have to be hardware, it could be software as well, just putting yourself out there and putting your product out there in front of people within those type of shows to make sure that the communication is there. 
I think the key is you have to have the, the passion for the product. Uh, you have to, you know, kind of know it inside and out so that it allows you to kind of like speak to it at any level to any kind of audience. Um, you know, the, the products that IO Gear have are not necessarily the most exciting until you kind of understand the applications that they apply, apply to. So the case for a game developer who may know code really well or, you know, know the, you know, the cinematics, um, you kind of have to speak to them on that, speak to your audience as you would speak to uh, kind of your mom or your dad, right. trying to explain kind of your point of view. Uh, and depending on the audience, kind of gear accordingly. Uh, usually what ends up happening with having managed interviews with uh, developers before, they sometimes forget that the people they're talking to are not uh, looking at code, looking at the cinematics uh, every single day. They're people who are interested in the space and, and have you know an understanding. But if you start talking about how the Unreal Engine interacts with your physics engine, uh, you'll see their eyes glaze over. And the problem with a lot of developers I've worked with they just kind of keep going. They don't. Mm -hmm. They don't kind of read the room because yes. they're not used to reading the room. So there's a lot of me kicking them under the, the table. So for like going to an audience like GDC, you know, speaking to other developers, you know, not every developer has familiarity with Unreal, but they have a general understanding, and that's kind of what you have to get folks to kind of take that step back, where. They can speak to, you know, the technology, the hardware, the software, but on a general level versus an intimate level. And then if you have that person who pulls you aside and goes, hey, I want to know um, how this would interact with my Linux box or that, or, you know, how did you solve this the physics problem? That's when you can go into full developer mode and, like, impress them with your, you know, your insights and your skills, um, you know. Beyond the passion, a lot of it is just having some solid talking points. Uh, one of the biggest, you know, uh, I, I would say problems that developers, uh, hardware and software have is if they don't have a clear kind of list of the things that they're supposed to talk about, they will talk about everything and anything. And uh, that's how you, how us poor PR and marketing people end up having to be reactive because someone will say, oh yeah, the beta is going to be extended for another two weeks when it's not, it's that's the, what they're talking about is, you know, the beta is going to shut down. We're going to assess all of the data and then, you know, the, the game gets launched. But what users hear is, oh, I get to play the beta for another two weeks. Holy crap. When it gets turned off, you go to the forum and complain, hey, here's this interview with the developer who said it's going to extend, you know, he said it was going to extend for two weeks. What's the deal? Mm -hmm. uh, so the, I would say that's the, the, the second challenge is, you know, having very clear talking points, having a, a kind of an objective to why you're there talking, what you're talking about, what you're allowed to say. Um, sometimes the developers that I worked with in the past uh, would go off camera and, you know, kind of talk to random YouTubers who were not even on our list, who had 2,000 subscribers. And they would share amazing details that, you know, other publications would have killed for. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're, you're approaching a very interesting point here. At these trade shows, like you said, 
we can often get lost as we're promoting or marketing our products and the scariest thing is saying something you shouldn't have said when the press is listening right yes and everyone is the press now right exactly (laughs) um the percentage of people that you approach these shows with that i guess to put it simply there's two types of audience the one that are looking for the exact product just haven't heard about it or the ones who are not at all your audience um how in your experience do you differentiate between the two like if you're talking to someone you're like oh this this person is just walking by versus a person who is actually looking for the particular need that your company provides or your game provides do you have any tips about how to read the room like you said to make sure that you're not bumbling along uh so there are a couple of ways uh, so in the case of like, if you're in a, like a trade show booth, uh, if someone is uh, actively trying to avoid eye contact, that person has no interest in your booth. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, you, you laugh, but there you, 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 you stay at enough uh, trade shows and you'll see like this active like way of holding your head so that you're scanning the booths to see what's interesting, but you don't want to make actual human interactions or human, you know, any type of engagement and any attempt to kind of like maybe prod them to come into the booth is uh, they will kind of literally like, like a gravitational field will like curve around you in an effort to get away from you. Um, If you do get someone who is going to come into the booth, who's shown interest a lot of the times it's really clear. You have, you have to be very clear with people. Um, you know, if in the case of when we were at GDC, we were speaking to folks about KVMs. Uh, I say KVMs and I know exactly what a KVM is, but we found at GDC about half the audience knew what a KVM was and half of the audience didn't. Uh, and once you fi- once they figured out it was a, you know, an acronym for keyboard, video mouse and then what that feature set allowed them to be able to you know access multiple computers via one keyboard one mouse and one set of monitors uh several people like you saw like this oh my god you can do that i didn't know you could do that and Mm -hmm. then you had people who went oh that's what that that box was called that i used in my debugging room um so a lot of it is like kind of actually seeing what their reaction is to the information that you provide them. Uh, like actually, I know this is a, a struggle for a lot of salespeople and, uh, and developers is you have to actually listen to the reaction that you're getting as you share this information. Yeah. Uh, because sometimes, you know, you, you you'll hype yourself up so much that you basically become a freight train where you don't give them a chance to, um, understand the information that you're providing them because you have rehearsed it so much. So there's no chance for them to, you know, have that moment of recognition. And then the eye, their eyes glaze over and they're like, okay, best of luck to you. I'm going <laughs> to go wander down to the next booth. Yeah. Um, so like a lot of that, like having the wherewithal to um, kind of check yourself. Yeah. <laughs> The social cues aspect of it is, uh, I mean, it, it, sh- it needs to be highlighted more because as game developers, being a developer myself in the industry, aside from talking to friends nearby, it isn't like a skill set that is often 
promoted, right? Um, no. Within the, the workplace. I, I, I can tell you some hilarious stories that I don't think I'm allowed to share of developers who uh, we did media training with. And uh, essentially, we, you know, you'd bring in a person who is, uh, you know, a mock reporter. Right. And they start asking questions. And they ask questions in like a, new, a number of ways because there are different reporter styles to asking these questions. There's the matter-of-fact reporter. There is the reporter who kind of buddy-buddy up to you and becomes really friendly and all of a sudden will ask you a question. And because you're like feeling warm, fuzzy feeling, you reveal all of the details that you weren't allowed to reveal. Oh, wow. Um, and this like across the board, every single development uh, studio from like the little indies that I worked with to the massive publishers, they all had the same problem where yeah. they would kind of like get excited. They would start telling things. And then literally it was like, no, you like, you just be glad that this was a mock interview where in a controlled environment. Uh, and then my favorite was we would always record these interviews and uh, then allow the um, participant to re-watch the video and see how they actually performed while they were on camera. Yeah. And I like, I feel like I crushed a lot of people's like thoughts of like how they looked on camera and how confident that they were, how they felt. And then they watch it and it's just like a bunch of, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> it is a reality check unless you film yourself or, or are used to public speaking. These are just parts of you that you don't normally get revealed, right? Uh, I mean, that's why I think a lot of wives and husbands <laughs> clash, right? I mean, it's just, if anything, it's just a person putting up a mirror, like you said, just rewatching the video themselves and pointing it out. Uh, because in our own frame of mind, we, we have such a absolute frame our, of ourselves and... I think indie developers or marketers or anybody that is out there selling, it takes a lot of practice to kind of get used to and be really efficient at. Yeah. Yes. And there are some really great examples of uh, folks who like you watch them on stage, you watch them in interviews and you see how they kind of present themselves. Uh, Reggie from Nintendo, uh, Doug Bowser, who's also from Nintendo uh, Jack Trenton, who I had the opportunity to work with once upon a time, he was an absolute pro. Um, he was the former uh, president, I think, of Sony. Right. Uh, and he could just, like, the it was kind of like watching a judo master. People would ask him questions, and he would just effortlessly deflect them and, mm -hmm. re, you know, return to his, his talking points, his message, you know, the messaging that he had agreed to in advance with the PR team. It was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so this type of training, I mean, you, you were talking about how uh, I'm familiar with this too, as well, like in, within the studio when, especially when we're doing like interviews and stuff, there are certain people in management that have to be prepped and trained, which is, Kind of like a fast way of learning through things. Uh, we're, we're talking about ways how to get better at it, but it only can be done through experience that you can really be better at it. But people are just being trained last minute <laughs> up to the event. Uh, how difficult is that usually of people succeeding oh, or not? Uh, well, it really depends on the person and um, that person's level within the company. So, like, usually management is better because 
they don't have all of the intimate details. They um, will basically focus on the message points that you have. The problem for them is if a reporter asks a question that the reporter thinks that they should know the answer to and they don't, there's that always that weird, awkward, long pause uh, where you know you see their brain kind of like trying to come up with a, a way of um, you know coming up with an answer. And a lot of the times you can you know what we, we tell a lot of people is you can admit you don't know. You can just say, I don't know. Let me get back to you on that. And it's something that the reporter might add, you know, as an app, you know, an afterthought or uh, include in the story as like this was included after the interview. Um, You know, reporters don't expect you to be a, you know, encyclopedia of everything that's going on and all of the details, uh, especially if you're more of the publisher level versus the developer level. So. The, the struggle always comes down to like the folks who, for me, the problem was always the people who uh, believed that they were 100% ready. That See, I, didn't, yeah. I don't need this training. It's, um, it's not going to help me. Uh, I've done this 100 times before. Those were always the people who put their foot in their mouth. Uh, the folks who were like, yes, I need this. I, you know, I'm going to listen to everything you say. I'm going to watch all the stuff. I'm going to reread these talking points. Those were the people who uh, were not the problem. Uh, I love them, and I I hope that everyone is like them. But <laughs> it really it de- it depends on the person. If you've had a lot of practice doing it, uh, it's very helpful. Um, you know, like I worked, like I said, I worked with several uh, big companies and, and big executives, and those executives who uh, like they knew it. They you know, like Jack Trenton is a perfect example. Like he knew his stuff. But he still would, you know, do the media training. He would still uh, have a comp, you know, have the conversation, go over the talking points, uh, was very attentive, listened to all of uh, our suggestions, and then he would, you know, blow it out of the park. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's like two different approaches that I've realized with people where when it comes to successful public speakers or just being uh, an excellent salesman or woman where uh, one is just very overly prepared. They know things line by line and they just practice that speech over and over and over and over. And the other one's super casual, like you said, having to talk in points uh, in the back of their minds. I guess the question is where I see with the overpreparedness, the people who do it wrong are the ones that stick to a script but as soon as yeah. something else happens, it flubs them up because now they're lost in the place and they're fumbling through the words. I mean, like how much of that is just because they haven't prepared enough or is it just a, that method is very hard to be super versatile? So that comes back to um, like the media training. Um, you know, you, you have the folks who are the robots. They, they stick to the script. Uh, if you ask them a question that doesn't comply with the script, you know, you get a 404 error. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you see that on stage, uh, which is I'm trying to get people to avoid out there, right? Oh, every time. Like, I like I love the I love the E3 presentations because you do usually get that person yeah. who um, is on stage, who, like, prepared for everything, but didn't prepare for the fact that the demo wasn't going to work. And right. all of a sudden, like, oh, how do I fill a few seconds of dead air while everything reboots. And those are the moments where you're like, please, let's see how this plays out. (laughs) E3 highlights. Yeah. 
yeah. Well, and that's the thing. Like you, you know, you you, you look and you the, the people who are comfortable and are able to kind of like, you know, it, it just slides off their backs are the people who they have those social skills. They know how to kind of like stall, um, maybe fill the time with some more information that they have in their, you know, in the back of their brains while the presentation loads or while the game tries to not crash. Um, it's definitely one of those situations where, you know, the more prepared you are, the, the more prepared you are, the more you're able to kind of, you know, adapt and adjust. Um, the people who like only read the script and have like, it's not context. There isn't any context to this, like talking points. They've just been told the talking points and that's all they go out to. Um, and you see that a lot with, uh, you know, if you hire a spokesperson, mm-hmm. they, you know, they, they're handed the talking points two minutes before. Yes, they might be an actor and they know how to read lines, but if you get a situation where they don't know what they're saying, <laughs> right. How, how do you recommend people to get better at that in their daily lives? Aside from, I guess there's no way to avoid it, but to get in front of people, right? Because that's, that's when the heart rates start to race and palms get sweaty, right? Is there a way to simulate yeah. that? <laughs> So the, the, the best way you can simulate it if you're, you know, if you're a developer and you don't have the time to hire a PR or a marketing agency to help you through media training uh, is set up a camera, get a friend to ask you a, uh, a bunch of questions. Uh, it could be someone internally, it could be a significant other, uh, and then watch the video of that interview. Uh, and as you kind of like work your way through it, like that's how a lot of media training happens. Uh, it's not a rocket science. It's definitely more of an art uh, and kind of a practice makes perfect situation. Um, I, you know, I've, I've recommended this to clients who don't have the budget for a media training to just basically get themselves in front of a camera. There's a chance that there won't be a camera, but the act of watching uh, your reactions and how you uh, like look, you know, listen for social cues, um, you know, making sure that your eyes are on the subject yeah. is key because you have a lot of situations where um, people like I had, I've worked with developers that they start to pontificate. Um, they stop looking at the, the reporter and they just start like spewing uh, facts and details and speeds and feeds. And like a lot of that information is not going to make it into the article because it's not relevant to the audience. Right. I see that a lot with uh, some people that I conversate with where they're, it's very a one-sided conversation (laughs) and they're not watching really the other person's reaction. If they're snoozing off or they're just being polite, but keeping their eyes open forcefully. (laughs) I mean, this is a lot. I think we all have those friends who, uh, instead of having a dialogue, you end up having a, mo- like they do a um, monologue right. and it's there for the, like the show uh, with the occasional, like, yes, you're right. Or yes, no, you're wrong. And then it continues like that, that, that flood. And I see that a lot with um, de- definitely when you get down to like the, the head developers, the people who spend so much time in their own heads, sometimes they, they, it, it kind of, it's hard for them to overcome that. Right. So we're both Orange County. Well, it sounds like you you spent a lot of time in Orange County, right? That's your your main yes. hub. Okay. 
we're actually next door. So I'm I'm in Orange County as well. <laughs> when it comes to the game industry, right? I'm frustrated how Orange County isn't bigger than it should be. It, it, we have all these nice roads and wonderful companies and residential areas that are f- affordable. But aside mm-hmm. from maybe a few companies affordable. here and there. Oh, yeah, exactly. Affordable. <laughs> but it's not like in L.A. where you have the Sony Santa Monica, the Naughty Dogs, the Dice. You know, there is, it's, a, it's a technological hub for game developers as well as San Francisco, right? Orange County... It's getting better, but it hasn't yes. gotten there yet, in my opinion. I wonder what your your feeling on that is, seeing so that you love seeing, Orange County as well. Oh, I, I love Orange County, and there are some fantastic developers here. Uh, I mean, you have Blizzard, you have Amazon Studios, you have NXile, which is now owned by Microsoft. You have Obsidian, which is now owned by Microsoft. Um, you have Ready at Dawn. Um uh, K2, which is now Reloaded Games, is here. Um, you know, there are countless little indie uh, companies that have been spun off from uh, the Blizzard. You, what you've been seeing more and more uh, is these developers who are um, who've grown up at Blizzard are now leaving Blizzard to start their own competing studios, which is kind of a little bit what you've seen with Los Angeles, except Los Angeles had more money to kind of infuse. Right. You know, Sony, Activision... They had the, the the money and the wherewithal to make those that area of Los Angeles like the go-to space. So what ended up happening is you had developers who, you know, they wanted to work for Activision, they wanted to work for Atari, they wanted to work for uh, Sony Santa Monica. So they made themselves available for that that area, and they set up that's their shop. Right. Orange County is behind the curve because right. we're always the weird sleepy community that's you know. We're the, you know, we're the small, sleepy community of 3.5 million people uh, where some of the biggest companies in the world are based, but no one wants to acknowledge. Um, you know, I think if Orange County was its own DMA, we would have be having a far different conversation because right now Orange County is included in the Los Angeles DMA. And as a result, the only time you hear about Orange County is when we're on fire. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, Orange County or the show. I mean, the show, the OC show, <laughs> gave oh, us yeah. a little bit of boost, put us in the map a little. Yeah. Well, that like Laguna Beach, like basically all the terrible things. Yes. Put us on the map, yeah. and you like if you sit back and you like look at the companies that are represented by Orange County, it kind of quickly becomes clear like there are a lot of blue chip companies here. You have Broadcom, um, Allergan that. You know, does all the Botox and the silicone boobs. Um, you have Edward Life Science. They do countless um, technology things. You have Amazon Studios here. Um, for a short while, Twitch was kind of running its operations out of Orange County, out of the Irvine Spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Blizzard that basically has grown into a giant super company. And then, of course, the granddaddy of all of them, you have Disneyland that kind of like feeds a lot of this. Um, you know, you know, the, there's always that argument of, you know, which came first Anaheim or Disneyland. (laughs) (laughs) I will say this though, just driving by Irvine, just, uh, the difference in the last five years have been insane. Uh, the more, there's more housing development. A lot more companies are popping up. 
I feel like Orange County, if anything, is finally having the recognition that it deserves in in terms of the talent here and the amount of space and availability. Uh, I think maybe five, ten years from now, it'll be a different story. But it's been a slow grind, like you said. It's kind of behind the curve and people are slowly recognizing it because now LA is just so flooded with traffic that people are being driven out now. Yeah. So I always joke that Los Angeles is not a city. It's just urban sprawl. <laughs> yeah. um, it's one of those situations where there is no, like you really can't identify a center other than downtown and orange County is kind of this weird conglomeration of centers. So you have, you know, areas like Irvine that attract, the blizzard and the Amazon and the obsidian um, talent. And then you wander into like the Newport beach area where an exile basically set up shop. And as a result, you have a bunch of little indie developments that are popping up over there. Um, So you have this kind of situation of each little city is kind of operating as its own kind of incubator for a different type, you know, different sort of genre. Um, You have developers who kind of, have left Blizzard or left Obsidian or left in Exile or uh, left Atlas slash Sega and are now kind of wanting to, you know, grow their brand, their, their, their new indie studio in the backyard where they're comfortable. And as a result of, you know, I feel like for the most part, Blizzard is the one who uh, kind of set this, set the stage for this because, they, you know, for the last 20 years, they've been, you know, occupying Irvine. And as their talent has grown and, and kind of spun off, it's a tr- starting to attract the same talent that Los Angeles did back in like the 80s and the early 90s. Yes, totally agree on that. It's a lot more comfortable. Blizzard has been very sustainable, <laughs> yes. which uh, I, I think developers are, 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 are too used and too used to the life here in OC to move anywhere else, which is what I've, I've, I grew up in Orange County. I've moved to San Francisco. I lived a bit in Los Angeles and worked there as well. And I always find myself back here because of the space. It just feels less yep. crowded uh, versus these other cities. Well, I, I, I would agree with you, except for uh, when you get on the freeway between right. 8 a.m. and <laughs> yeah. 9 a.m. Right. where it takes you 45 minutes to go four miles. Right, right, right. That that I agree. <laughs> but at least here in Orange County versus Los Angeles, you know, when I go off the ramp, it's not more traffic. <laughs> Orange County, you can just go around at least and try to have a life. But Los Angeles, just every street around the freeway is just impossible to get through. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, my last question comes to this, uh, which is the future with technology uh, as streaming and more people demanding instantaneous uh, content. Right. Um, I wonder what is the end game here? Uh, (laughs) This is kind of going super meta, but this is something I feel like you might be some uh, have some privy knowledge to or at least interested in. Everyone is always talking about um, how we're combining ourselves with computing hardware, right? <laughs> with the, the 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 phone being the extension of ourselves already, like uh, something like from DSX. 
where we're instantly a thousand or some people will say a million times smarter just having a smartphone in our pockets. At one point, do you feel like IO Gear is going <laughs> to cybernetically uh, enhance our life uh, in, in that way? I mean, how far away do you think we're, we're at that point where people are going to want to chip themselves with technology? Because it feels like all hardware is kind of leaning towards that with VR and all, all this stuff. Yeah. Yes, I, I would agree. Um, I think IO Gear is definitely going to be behind, uh, not a behind the curve. Uh, like due to the nature of our, our you know, peripheral products, uh, you know, I don't know how many people, uh, you know, once they chip themselves, are going to need extra USB hubs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I do like, I, I, you know, within, I think within the next 15 to 20 years, we, we will definitely see people who are chipping themselves for wellness. Um, I've seen some really incredible things that coming out of life science with regards to um, like eyeball cameras and, you know, basically creating an extra layer of information on top of the, uh, of, on top of the eye, whoa, kind whoa, of whoa, like whoa. what you've seen in the mirror. Spe- um, uh, you know, like this is definitely one of those things where you're going to see it more as a wellness tool. And what will end up happening is it'll transition into an entertainment tool once kind of the the details are kind of squared away um because i feel like you kind of this is the problem that like ar and vr are encountering right now like the technology has finally reached a point where it's commercially available but there is no incentive for early adopters and a couple people who've done it there's no killer app that is like required for you like required um and that kind of was the case with like you like if you look at phone development, you know, the iPhone was that watershed moment, but a lot of the technology that a lot of technology and the lessons that they learned had come from past phones. You know, Windows had come out with basically an equivalent of the iPhone like two years prior and nobody cared because it was terrible. Yeah. The I you know, Steve Jobs launched the iPhone and you know, it was the phone that everyone needed to have because finally it was like, oh, wait, this is why I want to have the Internet at my fingertips all the time. And we're seeing that kind of transition now, especially with like the voice activated, the series and the Alexas and the Cortanas. More and more people are, you know, discovering how kind of efficient it is to have a listening device in every single room of your house. Yeah. <laughs> and as that kind of digital assistant becomes more like Jarvis from Iron Man, I think, you, you know, you'll see a greater adoption. Um, and that's the, kind of the case with like the cybernetic and the bio um, implanted devices is you'll see folks kind of reach that point. And then IO gear just by the nature of like, we, we're, we're, a net, we are a connectivity company. So if someone needs a type, uh, a, a USB type, 12 port for you know their arm display mm-hmm. we will happily build a device for you mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm very interested in that type of future i think it's going to happen with our lifetime for sure you estimate about oh, 15 years that's a that's a crazy idea i mean like it makes sense when you when i really think about it like some type of contact lens that has an ar overlay of the world around you. I mean, that sounds very reasonable now within the five, 10 years of uh, these devices getting better and smaller. 
And, well, and you see it like you because you kind of see this pop culture is influencing yeah. um, the technology. So you have you know Sword Art Online, um, Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven, kind of like looking at the various possible speculative futures. And what you're seeing now is the technology trying to figure out, well, is, you know, an AR, you know, hard light situation, something that's actually possible. Um, and so you see a lot of like, it's, you, you, we saw this with Star Trek, you know, the, the tricorder was a work of fiction and now it's something that exists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, we are about that hour, Mark. I want to thank you for your time, Michael. But this is also the moment in our podcast where I hand the mic to you to promote, shout out, give attention to anybody, anything that you want to give attention to. So take it away. I think I know what you're going to talk about, but either which way, the mic is yours. Excellent. So if uh, anyone is interested, uh, iogear.com is the place to go for all of your high-end uh, KVMs. Uh, they are fantastic for helping uh, indie to AAA developers uh, build out and uh, manage their resources so that they can uh, make the best games. Uh, they allow you to uh, you know, connect to 2 to 16 um, devices at any time. So if you're that high-end cinematic uh, team or special effects team, uh, basically, you know, you can set multiple computers to do the rendering while you continue to watch YouTube and be, be productive. Um, and uh, if anyone else is interested, Caliber for Gaming, we have some of the latest uh, keyboards and mice, uh, the RGB specialty, uh, as well as our Keymander which allows you to play with your keyboard and mouse, which we are aware is a diversive issue within the, the community, but it is something that uh, we, we've heard from users that they love. We've heard from users that we're cheaters. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so all the same. Uh, I mean, that's pretty much it. Uh, IO Gear provides a number of connectivity devices from docking stations to KBMs to network adapters to keyboards and mice. Uh, where usually that device that's sitting in the back behind your computer and behind your monitor, and uh, we'll continue to be those uh, guys who connect your, you know, better investments to uh, make them better. Excellent, Michael. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I've been a huge fan since meeting you and your company, AO Gear, and I uh, loved to be talking to you about issues such as connecting with technology in a way that we all know it's going to come right so uh that is it that is it for the hour thank you michael thank you everyone for joining and uh see you guys next week take care brandon